0: Well, I'm happy to be back with you, sharing God's Word. It's been a few weeks for me, but I'm also glad because this morning I get to share with you one of my favorite psalms in the uh, whole book, Psalm 34. So I want to encourage you to take out your Bibles and to turn to Psalm 34. And while you're doing that, I, I just want to admit maybe why it's one of my favorites why I have resonated with this over and over. Because what i found as a pastor, but more than that as a Christian, what i found to be the hardest thing, it's not reading the Bible and hoping it makes sense. The hardest thing is not some complicated theological question that I struggle to understand. That's not the hardest thing. That's not even close to the hardest thing. In my estimation, the hardest thing that every Christian must face is the difference between what they expect and what actually happens. By this I mean that when you're introduced to Jesus... And you believe in Him with all your heart that He came and He died to take away your sins and to give you a new life. And He did. And you should believe that. And as soon as you do, what what happens? You begin to think, I have this wonderful new life that is wonderful, but it's not wonderful all the time. And before long... There are problems that creep in and there are disappointments and other people hurt you. And before long, you're thinking, what happened to this new life that I thought I was going to get when I trusted Jesus? And you have this set of expectations and there's a chasm then between your expectations and reality. If you think, rightly so, that the best thing that could happen to someone is to, is to get uh, life and get it abundantly and get it eternally in Jesus. That's the best thing that could ever happen. You would think that that would shape everything about your experience, and yet the experience somehow doesn't get the message. And people lose their jobs and their roof leaks and you know, their kids have trouble. And all sorts of problems happen in life. And there's this gap. And when that gap happens, then all of a sudden, that's when I really have to ask myself the question, is what I believe real? Am I believing something that's real or am I making something up? Because it's that gap that is the hardest to manage. The good news is you're not the first person to experience the gap between what they expect and what they experience. And you're not even the first per- person to to experience that that gap and ask the hard questions. I don't know if David was the first person to experience that, but he did that for us. He 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 struggled with the way that his life was unfolding while he was expecting good things from God. And because of that, we have Psalm 34. See, this is the introduction. <clears throat> it's, it's sort of a title. It's not really part of the, the text itself. It just says, of David. So David wrote this, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That title may not mean too much to you, but it's, <laughs> it's it's kind of a hilarious situation, really. So, back up a bit. David was anointed king of Israel in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. He was anointed king. Let me just ask you, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be anointed king? I would think it's a good thing. I would think it's like the best thing ever. In fact, I always wanted to be king. Never really worked out for me. But I did because I thought that's what would make it good. All the money, all the women, all the prestige, all the honor, all the fame, all the power, you can imagine, you're anointed king. That's a good thing, Right? He's anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. And what happens immediately thereafter is that the current king, Saul, sees him as a threat and begins to make his life hard. And then he makes his life hard and that's not enough. He begins to try and take his life. And there's a time when David's in his house and so the king is walking around with his javelin in the house. I don't know who lets it. That's, that's what happens when you're king. You get to take your javelin in the house. He takes his javelin in the house and David's on the other side of the room and he throws his javelin at David to pin him to the wall. And he does this a couple of times and David gets the message. Maybe I shouldn't hang around the house quite so much. And so he heads out. And uh, he and uh, his friend Jonathan... Make a plan, communicates to David that David has no business hanging around Jerusalem because Saul is, uh, committed to killing him. And so David's on the run and he runs, he runs just down the road to a little town named Nob and he hangs out with the priest there and, uh, it looks like that's gonna be good for him for about 15 minutes when an insider there that was, uh, saw David come, reported it to the king, and David was on the run again. And um, that meant that all of those priests at Nob got executed because they were nice to David. That's how angry Saul was. And so he's running and running, and he's got nowhere else to run. David runs out of places to hide. Now, think about it. Okay, you're. You're the king-elect. I mean, not just elect, but God has elected you as the king. That's a good thing. But now all of a sudden, you are a hunted man and everywhere you turn, someone is trying to take your life. That's a bad thing. There's a gap between what's good and what's bad. Well, he had nowhere to hide, so he runs to the enemy, the Philistines. And he goes to the king, who is Abimelech, And he's got no weapons, really. He's got nothing, really, to defend himself with. He's got no plan. He's running for his life. And he's captured by these Philistines and he's taken to the king. And so he does what any rational person would do, right? He pretends to be crazy. He does, and he starts, you know, shaking and drooling through his beard and doing you know, talking sorta crazy and everything they can do to convince this king he's out of his mind. And I I love the king's response. I mean, this of all the lines in the Bible, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. The king says to the, the the people who brought David, he says do I not have enough crazy people in this kingdom that you'd bring me another one? That's what this is talking about. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Well, as you can imagine, pretending you're crazy only works for so long. And so David hit the road again and he ran to a cave and hid in the cave of Adullam. And so right after, he changed his behavior. He was hiding in a cave. And it tells us then in 1 Samuel 22, it says David departed from there from the, from the king of the Philistines and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now listen to this. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So here's David pretending to be crazy because in effect, the gap between what he expected when he was anointed king and what he was experiencing drove him crazy. And so he pretended to be crazy before the king, and all of these people gathered with him. And it's likely that in the this is sort of the beginning of the uh, David's army, the beginning of David's kingdom taking shape here in seed form in this cave. And David writes for them. Psalm thirty-four. This is the way we do things. In the cave, David was saying. This is the way we understand God here in the cave. This is the way I want all the people associated with me to view the world. And he wrote for them Psalm 34. Now mind you, he's being hunted and on the run. And this is what he tells them. He says, I know you're in distress. I know you're in debt. I know you're bitter in soul. That's why we're getting along. But I want you to know, I will bless the Lord all the time. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then see, he invites. I mean, this is a, that's his testimony, right? It's all personal. I bless the Lord. His praise is in my mouth. And he says, my soul makes its boast. And then he says, okay, all of you, all of you who are now the company who are following God, I want you to magnify Him with me. And I want all of us to exalt His name together. See, this is, this is not probably what I would have said to them. I probably would have seen the glass half empty. I probably would have had a conversation about how things work, weren't working out yet, but someday they were going to work out, maybe. But somewhere, somehow, David got this view of God that enabled him to confidently say, while running for his life, my soul's going to make its boast in the Lord. Let the person in trouble or the humble hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So, one of the reasons that we're just going through the psalm, psalm after psalm after psalm for the summer. is because I, I want you to have the ammunition for your own soul. So that you have a vision of God that enables you to praise Him when you're experiencing the gap. When your expectations are one way and your experience is another. I want you to have the, the, the foundation underneath your soul so that you can weather whatever storm comes your way. And I want you to have that in the various circumstances throughout your life, like there are in the various circumstances throughout the Psalms. I mean, Psalm 33 last week said, when I'm in the congregation, let the, let the musicians play, play skillfully. We're all going to sing loud. We're all going to enjoy praising God. And he had in view a gathering much like this where everyone is, you know, thinking about God, praising God. And it's sort of a religious deal. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't always work for me. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to love going to church, right? But there are days when that doesn't always work for me. Because there are days when I feel more like I'm in the cave than I do that I'm in church. And so, it's this week that we find David in the cave. But the interesting thing, the thing that I'm trying to point out here, is that he is praising God nonetheless. His praise in the cave is likely sweeter than his praise in the congregation the reality of God being close to him in the cave pretending craziness is more important to him now in the moment even than it was likely in the congregation. And so he invites them. He said, let's make this little band of troubled people, this group of broken um, debtors. Let's exalt His name. Let's magnify the Lord together. Let that, let that characterize our group. He says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. So this is a guy who in his very face, has it describes his spit running down his beard pretending to be crazy, and he says, their faces aren't going to be ashamed. Oh, you might look crazy. But really, looking to Yahweh, looking to God, is the least crazy thing you can do. You will never be put to shame when you're trusting in Him. I mean, what confidence in the face of someone trying to take your life? I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now, it's worth stopping to ask yourself, would I respond that way? See, He's not done being chased. He's still being chased. This isn't like, I'm looking back 20 years ago and I feel really good about that period in my life because, you know, it was hard, but I came through it. He is like on the run in the cave right now. And he said, you know what? The Lord has delivered me. I am alive right now to write this psalm. And God's going to get credit for that. And so he... He praises Yahweh, even while he is still struggling with his situation. He admits, this poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. He saves him from his fear, he saves him from his troubles, even while he's underrun from the king. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And so, where does this come from? How can David do this, what it looks like so easily, and I struggle so much to trust in the Lord? What's the difference here? I think the difference is that David sees the promise of God and hangs on to it regardless of his circumstances. David knows it is the God of heaven who promised to make Him king. That it is the good God of His covenant who said, I will make you king. And God believed in the character of God. And see, I too often get my eyes off of God and onto my circumstances and I miss that confidence. The image in verse 7 is beautiful. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. There's a, there's a great scenario in uh, later on in the life of Israel's uh, kings where they're, <clears throat> they're being surrounded. And one morning, Elisha gets up and he looks out And he sees this horde of uh, soldiers ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. And then, he sees more than that. He sees chariots of fire and angels of fire all around, circling those soldiers. And his servant comes to him and he says, what are we going to do? And he says confidently, he says, there are more for us than there are against us. And and the servant says, you're crazy, right? It's all about being crazy today. You're crazy. And he prays, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see what's real here. What's even more real than the soldiers are encircling us. And he does. And the servant looks out and he sees chariots and he sees those angels and he, has, he, he all of a sudden trusts in the deliverance of God. And here now David is in the cave and he has that same kind of vision of what God is going to do for him. The angel of the Lord is encircled to protect those who fear Him. And he delivers him. Are you confident in God, you have that vision of God that even in the midst of what you're going through, that He is going to be with you and to care for you. And then He reaches this as the climax. He says, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The person who has this vision of God will be happy or will be blessed. When you seek refuge in Him, you'll be blessed. You don't believe it? Try it. That's the invitation. Try it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That, that's what's at stake, isn't it? When you have the gap between your what you think should happen and what is actually happening. You think God might not be good. My circumstances aren't good. What I'm going through is not good. It hurts like crazy. If I hurt like this and nothing seems to be changing in my circumstances, can God really be good? In the invitation Dave gives all of these people who are bitter in soul and in debt, he says, try it. In this group, we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to trust in Yahweh regardless of what it looks like on the outside. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You'll be happy when you do. And so... I would suggest to you that the goodness of God that David believes that he is holding on to demands that David praise Him. And not just go to church and sing the song, but praise Him even in the cave. Even when the conflict's unresolved. Even when the pain is at its climax. That's when you praise Him. For His goodness. The goodness of God demands our praise regardless of our circumstances. Now see, one of the things that's going on here, I think, at least in my own heart as I read this, is a battle between being religious and really having this life-giving trust in God. Because there is this tendency... To think that if I'm religious enough, God will change my circumstances. If I'm good enough, then God will be good to me. And David is saying that is not the equation we're working with. We are not saying if you are good, then you will have good circumstances. He is saying, God is good regardless of your circumstances. And when you believe that, everyone who takes refuge in Him is going to be blessed. Now, the the, the religious question is really, am I going to have the right answer here? Am I going to do this praise Thing that we do in church, just singing and, you know, saying nice things about God. Am I going to do that? You know, some of us can do that and we can put on a happy face. But this isn't about putting on a happy face. This isn't about pretending to be somehow religious. This is about the nitty gritty of life in the cave, praising God in the hardest times and having it change you. It's praising God and having that praise of God transform your life. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. See, there's this statement that I'm going to praise God no matter what. All of us are going to praise God no matter what. So taste and see that He's good. And then he transitions and says that, This same goodness of God that causes me to praise Him even when I don't understand my life here. That same goodness of God is going to change my life. Look look what happens here. Completely different kind of language. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Come, O oh, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear, fear of the Lord. So, three times in, in three verses, we have the fear of the Lord. And all of a sudden, there is an invitation to us. There was an invitation in this first half, right? To praise Him, regardless of our circumstances, at taste and see that He's good. That's sort of the fulcrum here. And now, there is an invitation to live a life of wisdom. A life that sees the world through God's perspective. That lives life the way that God would have it lived. And the place that that starts is with the fear of the Lord. With the respect that God is who He claims to be. He's not in the same category as you and me. That that God is awe-inspiring. He has goodness and greatness that is terrifying, were you to see it in an uh, unfiltered way. And he says, "Listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord." Now, how's he going to begin to teach the fear of the Lord? by breaking with the religious expectation that people might have. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What are the lions doing here? Why all of a sudden is he talking about Lions, And particularly young lions. I think he's talking about young lions because if anybody, if anything can handle life on its own, it would be a young lion. It would be, if anything could have plenty of food from its hunting, it would be the young lions. They of all the animals. The king of the jungle should have plenty. If they were going to rely on their own strength, it would be the young lions that would be successful. And he says, You know what? Those young lions suffer want and hunger. They don't have all they need. But on the other hand, those who seek the Lord Lack no good thing. And so what he says is this. I am not talking about you doing anything in your own strength that is going to solve your problem. Not talking about you being a young lion. Not talking about you making something happen here. And this is important because it's, you know, David's running for his life. He's, he's fighting who he can fight, and he's, when he can't fight, he's pretending to be crazy, and you think, oh, that's ingenious. He must really be trusting in his wits, or in his power, or in his might, and he's, he's like this young lion, he says, I am at the end of my rope, and I can't do it on my own. And you know what? I am seeking Yahweh, I'm seeking the Lord, and because I am, I lack no good. The answer is not to do better and try harder like a young lion. The answer instead is to seek the Lord. And so there is this divide between what is natural for us. When we get in trouble, we're going to try, aren't we? To do a little better in hopes that it will turn around. When he says, when you're in trouble, seek the Lord and you'll lack no good thing. And so he begins this He begins this turn toward a transformed life of wisdom, fearing the Lord, seeking the Lord. And then he says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So the foundation of a life that that is wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's that's the foundation. The, The next piece of this life of wisdom is an ethical life. One that lives in the right way. So it's not just I'm going to you know say nice things about God and be fine. I'm going to let the goodness of God transform my life so that I then pursue God and now, hmm, in the cave running for my life, do I desire life? Do I love many days? Do I seek good? I do 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 all of you I can see him in the cave making this speech right to to this band of outcasts and they say Yeah, we'd like not to not not to have the final chapter written in this cave. Okay, what do we have to do then? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. I mean, here you here you go. I mean, he's got this band that's becoming his army. And he's saying, this, in this army? Okay, now, this is crazy. The whole thing's crazy, right? In this army, we're going to seek peace. And sure enough, while he's being chased twice later on, he has the opportunity to kill the king, Saul, and he doesn't. He, he does what he's saying here. We're going to live a life transformed by the goodness of God so that it fears God. And we're going to live in a certain way not because we're religious and God will bless us, but because the goodness of God has changed us, and we want to live a life that is in submission to Him. And so, there's an ethical component to it. And this is um, this is uh, might say the second tier in wisdom: the fear of the Lord, the ethical life. And then one of the things we see all throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs is another facet here of a wise life is the clarity of the destination or the trajectory of my life. He is clear about where he's going. And you see this in the in the very beginning of the Psalms. Psalm starts Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delights in the law of the Lord and in His law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Everything he does will prosper. The ungodly are not so. There's two people, right? There's two ways. There's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the ungodly. And there's a, this you know, sign in the dirt, you might say. At the beginning of the Psalms, it says, which way are you going to take and make, make a wise choice? Here in Psalm 34, based on the goodness of God, now we're being invited again. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. The ears, His ears are open to their cry. You want to be in the cave? You want to hear? have God hear you? Okay, live. Be a righteous person. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. There's two ways. Which one are you going to pick? When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. (laughs) I mean, this is is fabulous, isn't it? Because now, now He's taking direct aim at our assumptions that give us this gap. They give us this chasm between my expectations and my reality. He says, wait a minute. The righteous cry for help. Why would the righteous need help if their life is hunky-dory? It's not. Their life is just righteous. Their life is oriented toward God. Living in the fear of God. Believing in the goodness of God. And when they do that, even though they're broken-hearted, and especially when they're broken-hearted, the Lord will be near. And He will save those who are crushed in spirit. I mean, what a beautiful verse. What a beautiful promise for those of us who don't have it all together. Again, He restates it Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, delivers Him out of them all. So there's two ways, and I'm commending to you the way of uh, the Lord here, even if you're afflicted, even if you're hunted, even even if it's driving you crazy. Because the Lord will deliver you. He keeps all His bones, not one of them shall be broken. The righteous, the one who is afflicted, He is the one who will be preserved even though he's in distress. Now that is just about as beautiful as it gets. But I want you to see, I want you to see though, that this verse, this verse is sort of the key that brings this psalm from, uh, ancient Israel to you this morning. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's what God does for the afflicted righteous person. Now, this not breaking the bones thing is important to the apostle John as he's writing the biography of Jesus. He's telling us about Jesus and about what happened to him on the cross, and how because of the uh, the beating that he took, and because of the the the, uh, the treatment that he had before he was on the cross, even he died more quickly than the other uh, thieves who were ex- executed there on either side of him. And they came to him and they saw that Jesus was dead, so they didn't have to break his bones, so that like, like they did of the for the thieves, so the thieves would die before the Sabbath began. Jesus was already dead, so he didn't break his bones. And John tells us that. He slows slows this moment down for a moment. He says they did not break his legs so that he couldn't push himself up and catch a breath and live longer because he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And here the Savior had already died and now they pierced his heart and blood and water came out. His bones weren't broken. And John says, he who saw it, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. I am... And he stops at this, it's at this point he stops his narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus. So that you might might also stop. And you might also believe. Not in your own ability to be a young lion, not in your own ability to do a little better and be a little more religious, but instead to trust in this pierced Savior. And notice what he said. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And John, in his narrative of the death of Jesus, reaches back to Psalm 34 and he pulls this out because he understands Jesus to be the fulfillment of Psalm 34. This righteous, afflicted one That God cares so much about. This righteous affliction, this righteous afflicted one that is experiencing and will certainly experience the goodness of God. He says Jesus fulfills that. That is who Jesus is. And why does He pull us up to Jesus? From Psalm 34. So that you might believe. So that you might believe that Jesus experiencing, Jesus the righteous one experiencing this affliction at the hands of his enemies, both of his own country and of the the Gentiles, just like David did, that Jesus this righteous one in His suffering might experience the goodness of God so that you too might be included in Jesus and enjoy the goodness of God. Not because you're a young lion, but because Jesus, the righteous, afflicted One, has One for you. The guarantee that God will always be good. it, It gets even better than that. I mean, this is just about as good as it gets and it gets even better because John included this, not breaking the bones, because... He wasn't only going back to Psalm 34, which he cites here. He was going back farther to Exodus, as, as Moses described the perfect Passover lamb. Because, you know, John was the one who said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what is it about that lamb? He is the lamb who was slain. Just like the Passover lamb. And so you have this Passover lamb, and in Exodus, In Exodus, as He's describing how you're to to eat the Passover, He says, don't break the bones of the Lamb. Identifying Jesus with the Passover Lamb so that God in His wrath passes over those who believe so that they might be forgiven. So that they might be reconciled to God. See, it's... All of this comes to its point in Jesus. And Jesus wins for us the guarantee that Psalm 34 is actually as good as it sounds. No matter what your circumstances, whether, whether you're running from your enemies, whether you have conflict in your home, whether you have health problems, whether you don't have enough money, it doesn't matter. God is still good. And Jesus is your guarantee. And so here he wraps up the psalm Affliction will slay the wicked. He's back on his two, two ways, right? Those who hate the righteous will be condemned, but the Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You might be hunted, you might be miserable, you might have all kinds of problems. But you won't have the biggest problem. You won't be condemned. And I said that Jesus won the guarantee of God's goodness for us. And that's why it points to Him. But He did so that none of those who take refuge in Jesus will be condemned. That's the very promise that we have been celebrating virtually all of 2018, right? In the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. See, it all comes together in Christ Jesus, both the Old and the New Testament, where God Himself guarantees He will be good to all who trust in Him. He does not make that guarantee to all who trust in themselves. He does not make that guarantee to all who trust in religion. He makes that guarantee to all who seek refuge in Him. And it is because of the goodness of God that you have the right, no matter the pressure you're under, to praise Him. It is because of the goodness of God that your life is transformed into a God-honoring, wise skilled in living life. That's what it means to be wise. That's what the second half of Psalm 34 is about. It is a belief in the goodness of God that changes both what you say and what you do. And you can participate in the goodness of God because of Jesus. And all you have to do is decide I'm going to take refuge in Him instead of trying to take refuge in myself. And that's the hope that we have. And so my invitation to you is the same one. It's the same one you're given in Psalm 34. Won't you try this? Won't you try Jesus? Taste and see that He is good. He saves all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a humbling thing to think that we can do our best. We can be like young lions and still not have it all together. And so, God, I I want to trust in You. I want to seek refuge in You. Like David in the cave, I want all those around me to seek refuge in You. Father, would You grant us faith to believe in this One whose, whose bones were not broken, who sealed and guaranteed for us that You are eternally good to those who seek refuge in You. God, would You help us to believe in Him today. And when we do, may it cause us to praise You and may it cause us to live with respect to You all week long. Amen.